Live from London, I'm Isa Suarez in for Julia Chatterley and this is First Move. And here's your need to know. Tokyo troubles on the eve of the Olympics. The opening ceremony is thrown into disarray. Covid cost, a warning on the economic impact of vaccine inequality. And pump, but don't dump. Elon Musk explains why he wants Bitcoin to succeed. It is Thursday, so let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move, everyone. Great to have you with us this Thursday. I want to get straight to the market action. As you can see, U.S. stock futures have weakened somewhat over the past hour. Their futures expect to open at 10 or 4 percent or so. It's now looking mostly flat. Uh, Wall Street open after what has been what we've seen uh, for the last few days, strong, solid gains, with the exception, of course, of Monday. Europe remains mostly higher, uh, as we shown. Well, FTSE is down slightly, with ex- but Etrodax and Parisat looking positive. We've seen strong earnings earnings as well. The promise of continued monetary support still offsetting concerns of, of course, of the spread of the Delta variant. The European Central Bank saying today that it won't pull stimulus anytime soon as health concerns and economic uncertainty persist. It recently tweaked its inflation forecast to allow policymakers to remain accommodative for longer. Inflation, however, remains a real concern for global business. We've been talking about it here on the show. Shares of consumer products giant Unilever are down more than 4%, almost 5%, in fact, in European trading, after it warned that rising prices are squeezing profits. It says more price hikes are on the way. If I take you to Asia, there was a lot of green arrows in Asia. The Hang Seng jumped almost 2%, as data showed Hong Kong inflation easing last month. South Korean stocks rose for the first time in five sessions. And it's in Asia where we want to begin today's drivers. The director of the Olympics opening ceremony fired just a day before the big event. Meanwhile, Tokyo reported nearly 2,000 new COVID-19 cases today. As you can see in that graph, that's the biggest daily tally since mid-January. Selena Wang is live in in Tokyo for us, the latest. And Selena, you know, the day before the opening ceremony, and they fire the man who put it all together. I know it's not the first scandal to hit the Olympics, but what's behind this dismissal? No, Issa, not at all. I mean, these opening ceremonies have just hit, been hit by scandal after scandal, and this really throws the ceremony into disarray. Now, he was fired for making anti-Semitic comments in a comedy act that was resurfaced that he did back in the 90s. Local media have reported on it, and the organizing committee now saying that they apologize that he made a mockery of such a painful historic fact, and they apologize for the troubles caused by all of the Olympic stakeholders, as well as the people, the residents here in Japan. But Isa, again, not the first official to be booted out. In fact, this just comes days after the music composer of the Olympics resigned after interviews surfaced of him in the 1990s talking about severe abuse and torture and bullying of his former classmates. This caused, unsurprisingly, outrage in Japan. But notably, the organizing committee did not immediately force him to resign. In fact, they said he hoped they hoped he would continue. It was only later that he himself announced that he was resigning. And on top of that, Issa, just a few months ago, the former creative director resigned after he made suggestions that were offensive to a female Japanese celebrity. So none of this bodes well for an opening ceremony that is supposed to be a symbol of unity and hope.
Indeed. And in the meantime, Selena, we've seen the number of people testing positive inside the Olympic Village increasing. Give me a sense of how worried athletes are, a sense of the mood on the ground. Isa, it's so stressful. These athletes are testing positive sometimes before they leave for Japan, getting their dreams derailed before they even get here to Tokyo. Some are testing positive at the airport, others in the Olympic Village. I mean, the list of athletes whose dreams are getting derailed because of COVID are only growing. And some really heartbreaking comments today from a Dutch Taekwondo player who said she's out because of coronavirus. She says she can't believe this is how her career is ending. It's just stopping like this, even though these athletes say they've done everything in their power to make sure that they didn't get put in this type of scenario. Also, a Czech volleyball player saying that she's out of the games as well, saying that she cried and she cursed and she cried some more. It's not an ideal scenario for any of these athletes. They train their whole lives for this one moment for the majority of these Olympic athletes. This, Isa, is their one chance. Yeah, it's heartbreaking and it must be so stressful for those athletes as they try, of course, to make sure they don't uh, test positive. Thanks very much, Selena Wang, there for us in Tokyo. Appreciate it, Selena. Well, vaccine inequality is undermining the global economic recovery. The warning from the World Health Organization comes as rich countries benefit from seemingly ample vaccine supplies, while poorer nations really continue to struggle. Lara Doe joins me now from Kenya, where the contrast is stark. And, and Lara, I want to talk to you because you wrote an incredibly personal uh, and powerful piece for CNN.com uh, about the loss that you've seen uh, and the contrast with the United States where you were living before. Now, I believe that uh, you lost your uncle to COVID. Your grandmother is also fighting for her life. How frustrated... Um, and angry are people in Kenya and yourself, in fact, you know, about the resistance to vaccines that we are seeing in the West. So, Issa, there's a sense of helplessness here, because even if you follow all the instructions like Rwanda has done with the following the World Health Organization requirements on social distancing and masking and gathering restrictions, they were still overrun with cases. Rwanda is now in Kigali in eight districts in the north, another strict lockdown where people are not even allowed to leave their homes. And the only protection is vaccines, but those vaccines are not available here. That is why only 1.5% of the African population is so far vaccinated. That's such a small, small needle in a haystack because the only way to have um, herd immunity is to get as many people as possible vaccinated. And I know what that is like. Um, having been in New York at the start of the pandemic, when it was the epicenter of the, of, the, of the crisis, and being back home now and seeing in my own family, my uncle, I lost him. He was in his 60s, had a whole life ahead of him. But because he didn't have a vaccine, he didn't stand a chance. He was dead in a few days. And my grandmother has been fighting for her life for nearly six weeks now. And I know that agony and that pain of waiting and fearing that any call from home might be the one to say she's gone. And again, if we had more vaccines here in Kenya, maybe that would not be the case. But so far, only 1.2% of the population in this country is vaccinated. And the reality, Larry, of course, is that countries such as Kenya rely on COVAX, but we already know that this is hugely underfunding it is severely underfunded, and so COVAX can only distribute whatever vaccines are made available to it. So it's tried to buy some of them, and the supply has been limited because Western countries, mostly rich nations, are hoarding vaccines, stockpiling them. It's been called vaccine apartheid. It's been called a catastrophic moral failure. And a vaccine delayed is a vaccine denied. One of the leading um, commentators on this subject, Dr. Gitaiki Denji, has said repeatedly. And so here's the contrast. 
when I was in Washington, D.C., all I needed to get vaccinated was to walk into a drugstore, CVS, and there were many more appointments available at Walgreens. The D.C. Health Department was emailing constantly. Anybody over the age of 12 in the U.S. can get vaccinated. And here, people in their 80s and 90s have no access to a vaccine, and these are people who are already vulnerable. So they are dying unnecessarily when just a single shot, two shots, might have saved so many of these lives. It is inexcusable, um, and you just to think as well that Kenya is one of the richest countries, of course, the wealthiest countries in Africa. It's just staggering this is happening. Uh, Larry, appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. If you haven't read Larry's piece on CNN.com, go to CNN.com and read that piece. It is uh, truly heartbreaking, incredibly powerful. And Larry, um, once again, uh, condolences for, for your uncle, and I do hope that your grandmother pushes through. Now, President Joe Biden made a fresh plea to Americans to get vaccinated last night CNN town hall in Cincinnati, Ohio. The president also weighed in on the recent spike in U.S. prices. He insists that high inflation will be temporary. Take a listen. The vast majority of the experts, including Wall Street, are suggesting that it's highly unlikely that it's going to be long-term inflation that's going to get out of hand. There will be near-term inflation because everything is now trying to be picked back up. Well, Mr. Biden also urged Congress to pass his multi-trillion dollar spending proposal, believes they will help reduce inflation. Paul and Monica joins me now for more. And Paul, one, of course, the economic fallout of COVID-19 is inflation. This is not something that is just, you know, hits the United States. It's a global challenge. We heard President Biden there acknowledging that it is a problem, but he believes it's transitory. How have his comments been received? Yeah, I think that uh, obviously, uh, depending on uh, your political point of view, those who are in favor of the president believe what he is saying about inflation. And this is, of course, something that Fed Chair Jerome Powell and many other uh, leading economists have been talking about as well, that the inflation pressures are transitory. They will eventually go away once the economy globally normalizes and some of these supply shocks uh, start to fade. But there are a growing number of uh, economists as well as, of course, uh, you know, conservatives, members of the opposition party who don't believe that Biden and Powell, for that matter, are correct and that these inflation pressures that have been mounting, they've been around for a while and they're starting to look more persistent than transitory, particularly when it comes to people going back into the labor force and being able to demand higher wages because wage growth is what really drives inflation for the longer term. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because we have been hearing Republicans blaming President Biden as well as Democrats for labor shortages at restaurants and other low wage businesses, basically saying the pandemic relief measures are discouraging Americans from returning to work. What was President Biden's response to this? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, unfortunately for uh, restaurateurs, it may not be all that encouraging. President Biden admitted that, um, you know, many of these companies are in a bind right now, and that may not change anytime soon. You do have a lot of people who are returning to the workforce and demanding higher wages, which are going to put pressure on smaller businesses. And, you know, there are some who have been, uh, you know, sitting at home thanks to stimulus. And there's been the argument that the stimulus checks have helped enable this kind of meme stock craze that we've had taking over uh, the market in Wall Street with a lot of people not needing to go back to work because they've been sitting at home trading GameStop on Robinhood and making big bucks that way. Paul and Monica there for us. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks for making sense of that for us.
Now, I want to bring you here to England, where businesses are being forced to close as the COVID-19 app puts hundreds of thousands of workers into self-isolation. The week to last Thursday, a record 619,000 people were told to self-isolate at home after being pinged in England as well as Wales. Among those isolating, of course, are the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister. Nina Santos joins me. And Nina, we're hearing, of course, more criticism of the government's handling of the pandemic, as it's being called here, the self-isolation crisis. And it's coming from business leaders. Explain to our viewers why they're so frustrated. Well, really, the scale of this problem at the moment, the fact that it's growing, as you mentioned, there's over 618,000 people, it seems, have been contacted and told to go into isolation in the week up until July the 14th. That compares with the week earlier when it was 500,000 people. So you can see that as the COVID infections grow, the number of people who are being taken out of the workforce, whether they have COVID or not, because they've had contact with somebody who has had COVID, is really having an impact on labour shortages. Now, this is being felt most keenly particularly in the food and drink industry with the British Retail Consortium, which represents shops, uh, saying that they're having a really hard time filling some of the staffing levels, but also supermarkets saying that this is affecting them right throughout the course of the food supply chain. Some uh, firms, like for instance the co-op in the UK, are saying that they're going to be having to hire about 3,000 temporary workers. Firms like Tesco behind me saying that their issue in terms of a pressure point is more when it comes to heavy goods vehicles, actually getting the logistics and transport of fresh food from one part of the country to the next. Um, the British Meat Processing Association reckons that between 5 and 10% of workers in that sector are currently having to isolate. And it's not just food, it's also the healthcare sector and policing as well. So this is becoming a bigger problem for the country, Brexit notwithstanding as well, which is also something that has caused logistical nightmares for some of these businesses as well, Isa. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. But, and Nina, the Conf- I'm just seeing a statement from the Confederation of British Industry, CBI, calling on the government is here to urgently bring forward its plans to allow double-jabbed individuals not to self-isolate. What is the government saying about this? Are they worried at all? Are they putting a plan in place? Well, that's the big question. So we heard from Kwasi Kwarteng, the uh, business secretary earlier today, explaining on British television that essentially the government is keeping a very close eye on this pandemic, if you like. So many people being pinged by the Test and Trace app and that they're monitoring the situation closely. They're hoping to imminently come out with some kind of list of which key workers, if they've had their two vaccinations, will be exempt from this rule of having to isolate if they've been pinged to say that they've been in contact with somebody who is COVID-19 positive. Having said that, Uh, There are also concerns that that could create a two-tier system between different jobs. Many businesses like the types of businesses on this high street behind me would like to know with more clarity which sectors are going to be included into that plan. And the other thing I have to point out, Isu, is while we're talking about 618,000 plus people uh, being pinged and told that they have to isolate over the last couple of weeks, well, you've got to also remember that the schools are about to finish just tomorrow here, the state schools in the UK, and there are more than 700,000 children a week that are having to isolate just an hour ago or so. So one of my children was actually told that I had to pick him up from school because somebody in his year group had tested positive for COVID-19. So it gives you an idea of how for parents who are working, they're having these types of troubles. And also for people who are managing to run big businesses, they're also having labour shortages because of this issue with isolation in a country. But by the way, Isa, the government hopes to within one month and a half 
have offered all adults who are eligible for a vaccine both of those two doses, Isa. Yeah, and the irony is that, you know, that their decision, the decision to lift almost all restrictions, of course, was supposed to expect to deliver a windfall, wasn't it, Nina, for businesses, uh, but it's having a very different impact. Nina DeSantos there. Thanks very much, Nina. Still to come right here on First Move, a self-driving car takes on the mean streets of New York, the CEO of Molloy, on company's big challenge. And Crocs knock the socks off investors. The shoemaker CEO tells us what's behind a stellar set of earnings. Those stories after a very short break. Welcome back to First Move. And we are counting down to the market open on Wall Street in roughly 11 minutes or so. And a mix open, as you can see there, is on tap with reopening stocks set to pull back somewhat. Airline stocks are set to fall, even as they report encouraging quarterly results. Southwest and American are both posting second quarter profits as travel demand bounces back. Federal aid, of course, helping the bottom line too. United, meantime, saying ticket sales have not been hit by concerns about the Delta COVID variant. Of course, we'll get imported earnings later today from major tech names like Intel, Twitter and Snap. Let me bring up today the stories making headlines around the world this hour. China has rejected a plan by the World Health Organization to further investigate the origins of COVID-19. The WHO proposed a second phase study, including more research into a theory that the virus leaked from a lab in Wuhan in China. But a Chinese health official dismissed the idea, saying it goes, quote, against science. Nick Peter-Morse joins me now uh, in London with more details. Uh, So, Nick, why is China refusing to cooperate on something as important as this? The nub of the Chinese objection essentially revolves around the increased rhetoric from the head of the WHO and also American Western officials, not only about Chinese transparency in this, of which there's been very little, but also about the theory of a lab leak being at the heart of where the coronavirus emerged from. A theory based at this point in very little open evidence that you and I can particularly see, but one that keeps coming back again and again, despite that lack uh, of solid evidence to underpin it. Now, essentially, the Chinese statement today, as you said, says that the WHO requests to look at the raw data behind much of the early origins of the virus. They really, for a long time, wanted to look at actual raw hospital information, not the analysis of that information that Chinese officials gave to them uh, in their trip early this year, a trip that they waited months to be able to carry out. And also, too, there have been suggestions they'd like to look a bit more deeply into some of the laboratories in Wuhan uh, that may have have had some early testing around this. China's said that it's impossible to accommodate that particular plan and gone on to say that the next stage of the investigation that WHO wants doesn't respect common sense and is against science, uh, essentially calling an end to this extraordinary international row, frankly, with the WHO wanting to send independent investigators in, knowing that they can't really do that without Chinese acceptance and rules being behind that trip, the Chinese delaying it, and then essentially massaging, it seems, or certainly clarifying in their terms the data which they would then hand to these investigators. What is the point of all this discussion, Issa? Humanity needs to know where this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic emerged from. Was it back? 
rats through intermediary animal, as seems the most likely explanation, according to the WHO report. Was it a lab leak, which many enemies of China geopolitically want to keep pointing to? It's extremely important that the scientists of the WHO won't get to go back because they did legitimately want to look at the raw data in hospitals, blood samples from October and November of uh, 2019, uh, before we know the virus emerged in December of that year, to look for the possibility that it was more widespread then, and then possibly look for where geographically it may have begun. Vital clues to pin down what the first emergence actually came from, and something, it seems, because of this geopolitical route now, frankly, here, and dispute over how the investigation continues, that you and I will never know the answer to. And that's utterly important. You have to think back of every major historical event over the last two, three hundred years. There's been a constant battle to work out precisely why it happened so it doesn't happen again. We may not get that answer with the pandemic. Issa? Nick Payton-Walsh there for us. Thanks very much, Nick. Great to see you. Now, the COVID Delta variant continues to force, fuel a significant surge of new cases across Asia and South Korea and Malaysia. The number of people infected or dying are at record levels. And authorities in Indonesia, now Asia's epicenter for the virus, say they plan to create 16 emergency hospitals, especially to cope with the spike in COVID cases. Back to Japan, where Selena Wang speaks exclusively with the CEO of Suntory, one of the country's biggest drink makers, who now says the Olympic Games are losing their commercial value. We thought about uh, becoming an uh, Olympic uh, partner because I was a member of the uh, delegate to, to uh, uh, win the bet. Went to the Buenos Aires together with the Prime Minister Abe. But I thought about but uh, I didn't think my economics didn't match. Too expensive. So instead of uh, being a partner, I thought that uh, we should... Uh, uh, work with the uh, on-premise uh, restaurants, bars together outside of the uh, big, you know, uh, stadium and uh, venues of Olympics and Paralympics. So we decided not to go for it. Do you think that these games could still boost international businesses for Japanese companies? I'm skeptical that uh, the Olympic Games will bring and attract. Uh, business partners more and more? I don't think so. It's been reported that many Olympic sponsors in Japan were actually pushing for the Olympics to be delayed so that more spectators could come, it would be better for business, so that more people in Japan would be vaccinated. Do you think the Games should have been postponed? Uh, ideally, at least two months. I think the Games should be postponed. Not a year. But uh, considering the uh, current rollout of vaccines in this country, two months from now should be the ideal timing. What were the plans exactly that Suntory had for these Olympics and what has been scrapped because of this ban on spectators? We had a plan to open a couple of uh, uh, bars to promote a brands to spectators visiting from abroad. But we canceled the contracts. And plus, uh, we were working with the uh, on-premise players to promote our brands around the uh, venues of the uh, games. But uh, we, we can't make it now. And uh, so the economic losses uh, will be enormous. 
If spectators were allowed at these games domestically and internationally, is there a percentage or a number you could put on just how much of a boost that would be for your business? I would say only as far as as for domestic business is concerned, I would uh, tell you uh, around uh, 10 to 12 percent. And, you know, we could have sold the uh, premium products carrying gross margin. So the sales itself is is very important, but uh, operating profits should be a lot. Because not only spectators, but also that excitement, you know, makes a ripple effect to the Japanese consumers too. So total excitement creates a huge demand to innovative products and uh, premium products. Now you are watching First Move, Market Open is next. Do stay right here with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. You heard about US stocks are up and running this Thursday. We've got a mostly flat open uh, Wall Street this today, if you can see, pretty, pretty flat. The Dow drifting lower after really two days of solid gains. New data today showing U.S. jobless claims jumping above 400,000 again. It's not really helping the sentiment. It is the highest level of claims since mid-May. Now, earnings, solid earnings can lend some support to markets. We've got good results today from the likes of appliance maker Whirlpool, drug maker Bigen, and telecom giant AT&T, the parent company of CNN. More than 80% of companies reporting so far this profit season have beaten earnings as well as uh, revenue expectations. Meantime, shares of China's ride-hailing app DD Global are going uh, down more than It's actually down more than 6%, in fact, in early trading. A Bloomberg report says Chinese officials would impose, quote, an unprecedented penalty for the company following its U.S. IPO debut last month. So we'll keep on top of the the share price in DD Global. Well, if you've ever been in the back of a taxi in New York, like this one being destroyed by Bruce Willis in Die Hard with a Vengeance, you will know all about the crazy drivers, the traffic jams, the general chaos. But Israeli tech firm Mobileye thinks its self-driving technology can cope with all of that and much more. In a rare move, this specially adapted Ford is legally allowed to drive autonomously on New York's streets for the first time. Now, it uses 12 cameras and has a human backup driver, just relax, to keep an eye on things. Mobileye, which is now owned by Intel, is also testing in other cities around the world. Jack Wiest is an Intel fellow and vice president of autonomous vehicle standards at Mobileye. Jack, great to have you on the show. Look, I did panic when my producer told me that you were testing autonomous cars in New York. I thought, why New York? Surely you can find a city that's slightly quieter. We certainly could, and thank you for being, giving me the chance to be here. We really believe that if you can drive in New York, you can drive anywhere. And so if we want to prove to the public uh, and to governments that this technology is safe and that it does work, we've got to show that it can drive in the most challenging environments. And what better city to do that than New York? Uh, talk to our viewers, explain to our viewers right around the world, Jack, what kind of technology you use for this. I know you have cameras and radars, but just in more detail. Yeah, the car is equipped with 360 degree sensing. So it has cameras all around seeing every direction. Uh, We believe that cars should be able to drive with vision only. And then we have a separate car that can drive with radar and LIDAR. And then we combine those two together commercially for redundancy. So this is one of the key pillars of our approach that we think is better for safety to have redundant sensing systems for commercial deployments. 
And you have a human driver behind the wheel for this testing, correct? That's correct. For now, human driver definitely behind the wheel. These are highly trained drivers that are ready to take over the vehicle should anything go awry. Um, but we're confident that the data that we will collect uh, and the performance of these vehicles will show uh, that even today, uh, these vehicles are safer than your typical human driver on the streets of New York. Now, you have been testing your technology in Tokyo, in Paris, Shanghai, and, and I believe Detroit. What have you learned from these cities, from testing in these cities? Yeah, one of the reasons why we test in so many different cities is driving is so different in so many places around the world. And so if you have ambitions to scale automated driving globally, you need to test globally. Uh, so in Tokyo, for example, there's a lot of elevated highways with roads underneath and then maybe a tunnel underneath that. So that creates unique challenges for mapping. In New York, of course, uh, pedestrians and all sorts of strange vehicles and horse-drawn carriages uh, are pretty commonplace. Um, in Israel, uh, you have a very different driving style yet again. Uh, so it's important for a company with ambitions to scale globally, to be testing globally and make sure we can operate in any environment around the world. Let's talk about that. When do you envisage that this sort of technology will be available for consumers, like fully self-driving cars? What's the timeline, the vision, timeline, the vision here? We plan to release our first uh, robo-taxi service directly to consumers in Tel Aviv in 2022. So we are on track for doing that. Uh, we believe, though, uh, that, that uh, the real prize uh, is consumer automated vehicles for you and I to be able to own a car in our garage that can autonomously drive us anywhere we would want to be able to drive that car ourselves. And for that, uh, we think 2025 is the time frame. but we need some additional innovations in terms of some new and novel kinds of sensors uh, that allow that car to drive anywhere under any weather condition. That's pretty soon though, 2025. What, what, in order to get there, what are you lacking? What are you missing? Well, the main thing is really just cost and scale. Uh, the technology, as well as it works today, still a bit too expensive to fit into a consumer vehicle that you and I could afford to purchase. Uh, and so we've got to have new and novel kinds of sensors that are cheaper uh, and more capable. Because if you own a car and it's in your garage, you're going to expect it can take you anywhere you want to go. Uh, you don't want to have to drive 10 miles to a geofenced area and then suddenly the autonomous features turn on. So it's both a combination of capability and cost uh, to get the self-driving system into a profile that can fit into any uh, consumer vehicle you could buy. And Jack, you, you have the backing, I think we said at the beginning of, this, of the story, we had to introduce you, of Intel, which bought the company in 2017. Do you already have auto companies kind of lining up to purchase your technology? Yeah, one of the benefits of Mobilize Approach is that while we will be operating a robo-taxi service in Tel Aviv, for example, uh, we also uh, are very lucky to have many OEM customers, uh, some of our largest customers around the world delivering driver assistance solutions today. Uh, so whether, whatever the path to market might be, whether it's operating our own service, providing our system to a, an automaker, or providing vehicles to an existing ride-sharing service, uh, we support all paths to market depending upon what the right thing to do is in that geography. And the partnership with Intel has really been fantastic. You know, so for example, that sensing challenge I mentioned earlier, Intel's technologies in silicon photonics, Mobileye is reusing to build a new kind of LiDAR sensor that will be cheaper and have longer range and more capable than other LiDARs that are on the market today. So the combination of Intel and Mobileye together is really fueling Mobileye's scale ambitions. Well, keep us posted on how it goes in New York. Jack Reese, the Intel Fellow and Vice President of Autonomous Vehicle Standards at Mobileye. Thank you very much, Jack. Great to have you on the show.
Now, up next, Crocs strides confidently into post-lockdown life with record earnings. I speak to the CEO next. Welcome back, everyone. Now, shares in Crocs are soaring more than 13% last time I looked. The shoemaker surprised Wall Street with record revenues in the second quarter, up 93% compared to last year. The company also revised up its outlook for the rest of 2021. And now it says it expects revenue to jump this full year compared to last. Look at the price of the shares, up 12% or so. Joining me now is Andrew Rees, the CEO of Crocs. Andrew, great to have you on the show. What a stellar quarter you have had. Uh, I suspect because the pandemic has meant most of us have uh, been seeking comfort from home. How has business been globally for you? Well, business has been very strong. As you highlighted, you know, incredible revenue growth. And we've seen that revenue growth really for four quarters in a row now. And as we look at the year, our expectation is between 60 and 65% revenue growth for the year. Um, if I look at around globally, particularly strong here in the US, um, but we're also seeing really strong growth in, in EMEA. So that's our uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa region, and also in Asia, despite some, uh, you know, significant COVID impacts in Asia. If you think about India um, during the second quarter, where it was uh, obviously a uh, a very dire situation. Of course. And Andrew, now, of course, we're starting to see people being vaccinated, returning to work. Do you worry at all that the crocs will be thrown in the back of the cupboard, that people simply won't be buying them at the same rate they were? Uh, no, not at all. Actually, <laughs> if you kind of look at the trajectory of the company, um, we were on a really strong uh, upward trajectory in terms of growth and improved profitability as we came into the pandemic. I think we've benefited from the pandemic, but also been really smart about how we appealed to our consumer base in terms of donating shoes to frontline healthcare workers and uh, and really uh, continuing to improve the uh, desirability and the considerations of brand through incredible marketing. So, yeah, we're not concerned about a sort of pullback based on people going back to work. Um, we think they should wear the crocs to work. Yeah, and as you were talking, we're looking at a, a share price graph of Crocs for the past two years. You see the, the, the increase, in fact, uh, started in April 2020 and has continued to surge. The company, though, Andrew, is div- div- diversifying. It's pushing from where I was looking into sandals and platform soles. But you've also had collaboration with celebrities and other brands such as Balenciaga, one of them. How important has this been, Andrew, to creating kind of excitement around the brand? Yeah, look, our broader marketing strategy, of which a key component is uh, is collaborations, is hugely important, right? You mentioned Balenciaga. We just uh, launched our, our second collaboration with Balenciaga. We did a, a one a number of years ago, uh, and they get a great deal of attention. They get a great deal of, uh, of buzz. Uh, but the, the secret to our collaboration strategy is the very broad uh, spectrum of people that we collaborate with. So in the last quarter, we collaborated with a, you know, a skatewear brand, Palace, in, in London, you know, a, uh, a noodle or ramen brand in South Korea. Um, and Balenciaga, as you mentioned, pretty diverse. And it brings a great deal of creativity, interest and excitement to the brand. And, um, and as you know, I think you might have also seen, you know, earlier on in the quarter, StockX called out the, the growth in terms of the resale of our products. So that's the limited supply that exists on, on many of our products, which then cause people to, to trade them in the aftermarket. So it's very, very important in terms of bringing heat to the brand. Yeah. And I mean, what is fascinating about Crocs is that you have both blind loyalists, Andrea, and those uncompromising cynics. Do you think that you ever appeal to everyone? 
Absolutely not. We don't want to. Right. So, um, you know, it's a very polarizing brand. And that is one of the core strengths of the brand is those loyalists that have and we get pictures from them every day uh, may have 30 or 40 pairs in their closet. And then we get um, uh, other people that, you know, are, are complete cynics and will take to social media to deride the brand. And it's that tension that is really, really important. It allows us to uh, get a lot of free publicity. Um, and I think it's a really important component of uh, the dimensions of a brand. So, uh, you know, yes, we want more people to, to to think of the brand as relevant to them. So one of the things that we look very closely is brand relevance. And that's been rising quite dramatically. We've got four years in a row now with double digit improvement in terms of brand relevance, which means more people think it's for them. So that's hugely important. When I was looking at your earnings report, something that stuck out, stood out for me, Andrew, is the, this idea that you're, the commitment you're making to transition to net zero emissions by 2030. Give us a sense of how you're able to do this and whether this is being driven in any way by customer demand. Look, I, I would say, firstly, we've been working on this for quite some time now, and it's now that we feel comfortable in terms of revealing it and making that commitment. It, it is absolutely driven by customer demand, right? And it's also driven by our desire as a company to do the right thing for our communities and, and for our planet. So the younger consumer in particular, but and also the global consumer, is very interested in, in the, um, the environmental responsibility that a brand takes. And if you are irresponsible, they will migrate away from you. If you are responsible, they will certainly put you higher up in their consideration list. So that is an important factor. That being said, uh, we've been working on it for some time. We're able to do this from a number of different mechanisms. One, at first I'd call out is our product today. So our classic clog, that's the clog that you're familiar with, already has an incredibly low carbon footprint of 3.94 kilograms of carbon. That's way below what you know many other footwear offerings would be. Um, and then in terms of how we can further reduce that, uh, we're looking at both sustainable ingredients that go into that product. So uh, today, much of that product is derived from a... Um, for petroleum-based uh, inputs, uh, we're working with a major chemical company to derive those inputs from uh, sustainable resources, and we're well advanced with that, and we think we will be able to dramatically increase the proportion of our product that's come, coming from that, and we'll have announcements around that in the future. But we're also looking at where we get our energy from, we're looking at our packaging, we're looking at reuse and, re and, uh, and resale of our products. So we're trying to look at all aspects of the carbon footprint, and we're very confident we can, we can, up, we can reduce the footprint and then offset the remainder. Andrew Rees, the CEO of Crocs. Thanks very much, Andrew, for taking time to speak to us here on First Move. Still to come right here on the show, Bitcoin on the rise again following Elon Musk's latest comments on the cryptocurrency. What did he say this time? Claire Sebastian joins me next. Now, Elon Musk, one of the loudest voices in the crypto world, clarifying his position as an investor as well as supporter. Take a listen. If the price of Bitcoin goes down, I I, uh, I lose money. I, I'm not sort of, you know, um, you know, I might pump, but I don't dump. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it, it's not a case of um, I, I definitely do not believe in, in getting the price high and selling or anything like that. Um, so uh, and I would like to see Bitcoin succeed. Now, the Tesla CEO also said his company will likely start accepting Bitcoin again. And Claire Sebastian has been monitoring all. She joins me now from New York. And Claire, we know that he's supported of Bitcoin, but he does have, he still has, I should say, environmental concerns. 
Yeah, he's, uh, it's interesting he said he doesn't pump up the price of Bitcoin because he has really uh, been responsible this year for a significant decline in the price of Bitcoin. Many will attribute the, the huge falls that we've seen in that cryptocurrency since since mid-May when, when Elon Musk announced that Tesla was suspending accepting Bitcoin uh, for, for car payments. That really was a, a significant trigger in those declines in Bitcoin. Now, these environmental concerns are still going on, but Elon Musk did say that he's seeing some improvement. Take a listen. And we want to do a little bit more diligence um, to confirm uh, that the could, could confirm that the percentage of renewable energy usage is most likely uh, sort of at or above fifty percent, um, and that there is that 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 there is a trend towards increasing that number, um, and if so, then Tesla will resume Bitcoin uh, accepting Bitcoin. Well, he's a, uh, we don't know when Tesla will resume accepting Bitcoin, but we do know that he has a point when it comes to some improvements. There are signs of improvements in the energy mix of Bitcoin. For example, China used to be at the beginning of uh, last year, more than 70 percent of Bitcoin mining. We know China is very coal intensive. This April, uh, it was about 46 percent of Bitcoin mining. So that would suggest, although it's not conclusive, that there is a higher percentage of renewable energy. But of course, Bitcoin is still extremely energy intensive, still used, according to the Cambridge Centre, for alternative finance, more energy in a year than Austria. Let me ask you this, Claire. Does he still have the ability to move crypto markets? It certainly looks that way. So this wasn't just Elon Musk uh, speaking. He was uh, at an event with Jack Dorsey and Kathy Wood of ARK Invest, two very uh, well-known Bitcoin proponents. So this was a spectacle for the crypto community. And the price of Bitcoin did go up uh, about 10%, almost 10% in the hours before uh, they they spoke on, uh, in a sort of virtual gathering together. Uh, and this wasn't just because of the, the suggestion from Musk that he he might, that Tesla might start uh, re-accepting Bitcoin as payments for cars. He also revealed in his own portfolio. He owns Bitcoin. Tesla owns Bitcoin. We knew that. But SpaceX also owns Bitcoin. That was news. Uh, And it's not just Bitcoin that he was able to pump up. He also owns Ethereum and, of course, Dogecoin. And the values of those cryptocurrencies went up as well in the hours before this, uh, this event. Claire Sebastian there for us in New York. Thanks, Claire. Great to see you. Now, the Tokyo Games will be unlike any Olympics we've seen before, along with the pandemic restrictions and a one-year delay. Two sports really make their Olympic debut on Sunday. That's surfing and skateboarding. CNN's Blake Essek finds out more with the help of an underground skateboarding crew. At Triangle Park in Osaka, creativity is king. Here, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, or how much air you catch. It's all about innovation, art, and self-expression. People should feel free when they skateboard. It's better if there are no rules. For more than 30 years, this park has been home to Japan's underground skateboard scene, the birthplace of alternative skating and a diverse crew of skaters known around the globe as the Osaka Daggers. Taichiro Nakamura, better known as Chopper, is considered by many as its father. He's been skateboarding on the streets of Osaka since he was a teenager. Skateboarding represents freedom and diversity for me, so I'm trying to inspire younger people to value those ideas too. We want to foster an environment where everyone is free to express their own unique style. 
The Osaka Daggers are not a team, but instead a culture, a pioneering group that was once considered nothing more than rebels and misfits now represents the foundation of skateboarding here in Japan. A foundation that Daisuke Hayakawa, coach of the Japanese Olympic skateboard team, says will, in a sense, be on display when skateboarding makes its Olympic debut at the Games here in Tokyo. At the Olympics, people will be able to see how skaters express their creativity and ideas through skateboarding. While skateboarding became an Olympic sport, it's important to remember the culture around it. A culture that could become more widely accepted as the sport goes mainstream. I think the future is bright for skateboarding. Back in Osaka, while the Olympics have already had a big influence on shifting perceptions around skateboarding, these skaters say acceptance and change means a constant struggle, as skating here is still technically against city rules. From the outside, it looks like this park belongs to young people, but when we skateboard here, the police always come. But that hasn't stopped Chopper and his crew from doing what they love at Triangle Park and just down the street at the indoor skate park, sharing the passion and culture embedded in their DNA with the next generation. I started skateboarding when I was three. I think it's a really fun sport. Hokuto Yonimura, at nine years old, is the youngest Osaka dagger, a talented skater with big aspirations. I want to make it to the Olympics because I really want to win the gold medal. A dream starting this year that could become a reality as sport and culture collide for the world to see. Blake Essig, CNN, Osaka. question is, why is Blake Essig not, uh, not trying it out? Now, finally, on first move, the Hubble struggle is over. The space telescope is working normally again after a mysterious glitch that lasted nearly a month. NASA engineers say they successfully switched to backup hardware. They're now watching a pair of colliding galaxies and a galaxy with unusually extended arms. Really pretty fascinating stuff. And that's it for us. Thanks very much for watching. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. Do stay right here with CNN. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.